And so this morning I would direct your attention to Acts 17. We'll read that text together in just a moment, Acts 17 in your Bibles. Before we read the text of Scripture, I just kind of like to remind us of our context. You'll remember that Paul is now on his second missionary journey. They've made their way um, from, from Philippi to Amphipolis to Apollonia and then to Thessalonica. Now we know a good deal about their visit to Thessalonica, not just because the book of Acts records it, but also because Paul subsequently wrote two letters that we now call 1st and 2nd Corinthians uh, to those believers there in Thessalonica. But you'll remember that the Jews, the Jewish religious establishment, um, took great issue with Paul, and they, he ran, they, they ran Paul and his company out of town. They made their way over to Berea, where they made some converts there in Berea as well. That Jewish establishment from Thessalonica heard the word that um, things were going well for Paul in Berea, and so they made their way then over to Berea to cause trouble over there, and they had to flee Berea as well. And so what happened following that is Paul made his way down to Athens, and at some point uh, during that time range, um, they decided that it would be good um, for uh, Timothy to make his way back to the believers in Thessalonica to encourage them. So Paul goes on to Athens and he waits there alone. That's when our text of Scripture takes place because during that time when Paul waited in Athens, he was called up to what is called the Areopagus, or you may hear it referred to sometimes as Mars Hill. Right. This was the seat of learning. This is where the philosophers gathered, and this kind of impromptu court was the one that had the responsibility to determine whether Paul was allowed to continue to teach the doctrine that he was teaching. And so this was an opportunity for Paul to give the gospel um, to these philosophers. Now, remember, we reminded ourselves last week that these are now those who are part of the, the Greco-Roman world. These are not Hebrews. These are not ones who follow the one true God. And so it's really interesting to see Paul's presentation in Acts 17 to a group of people who are not monotheistic. They are not those that believe in one God and certainly not one true God. And it is really, really interesting, as we discussed last week, how Paul relates his message specifically to the audience that he was preaching to. And we noted uh, some of those things last week. I want to remind us of Paul's message. And so we'll begin our reading here in Acts 17 as Paul is beginning to preach in verse 22. We'll read down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll ask for God's help as we consider this passage of Scripture. So again, Acts 17, we begin our reading in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this, excuse me, with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, 
so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysimus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for this, your word. We pray that as we consider it this morning, you would help us. Help us to be strengthened, help us in our understanding, and help us, Father, that most of all, by your Holy Spirit, we may apply the words that we are learning from this morning, and may we change to be more like your dear Son. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Picture this with me. Imagine there is a doctor, and the doctor is standing before a patient. This patient has a, a health problem, and it's a, a developing health problem because of something that they are doing wrong in their life. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's some sort of a, a dietary practice, um, something that they're eating too much of or, or not eating enough of. And the doctor knows that, that in large part, the suffering that they're enduring could be, could be avoided if, if uh, they change their diet. Now, what would that doctor do? Well, of course, a good doctor would, would go on and, and tell the patient, you need to make some changes. What does the doctor not do? Well, the doctor, of course, doesn't say, well, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, I don't want to say something that's, that's offensive to them and that might, might alienate them. And, and uh, you know, I, I just don't really want to address diet. I mean, that's kind of a touchy thing. And, and I'm not going to tell my patient, no, that, that, would, that would be silly. A doctor, of course, who knows that there's a problem, uh, knows that they need to have a conversation with that patient and tell them directly, you need to change or, or this is what's wrong, is going to do just that. Even though it may be hard, even though it may be a difficult conversation, even though the patient might be uncomfortable with the doctor telling them the truth, a good doctor is going to tell a patient the truth. Unfortunately, on the spiritual level, many churches, many individuals, many believers have forgotten that reality. If we rewind in American history, we see an interesting phenomenon that has developed it really, it really took place in large part in, in the, the late 70s and early 80s. There was this movement that began amongst churches, and of course the seeds of it go back even earlier than that, but really as a formalized movement that was being written about, um, there was this, this attempt to a, uh, approach the church's work as a marketing effort. 
So what happened was that, that successful methods were gleaned from the secular marketplace and then imported into the life of the church. And people began to think about the church's role, uh, the church's mission, the, the, the evangelism of the church as something very different than previous generations had thought about it. So many, many in the church marketing world would suggest things such as, you know, what does the community want? If you're going to start a church, what you need to do is develop a survey and then and then take that survey to those in your community and find out find out what it is that they're looking for. What are the the felt needs or the perceived needs of that community? And then you would form, much like you would in the marketing world, you would perform uh, uh, analysis of that data and and develop this this person, this target audience that you're trying to reach. Now, it might or might not be coincidental that usually this target audience that these churches that follow this model are are seeking to reach just happen to be young, suburban, and affluent. So this marketing strategy was borrowed from the corporate world and uses many of the same techniques of a, a flourishing business. The gospel at that point becomes treated like a a commodity, like a a good or service that is sold in the marketplace. So it's tires or it's computers or it's food or it's spiritual services. It's all basically the same. Well, what of that philosophy? Has it worked? Well, there's a sense in which if we look kind of at outward standards, in the last several decades there has been a growth in very large churches, what some call quote-unquote megachurches that have sprung up using clever techniques, extravagant worship, aggressive marketing. Seminars are given. Those that have formed these kind of churches are able to sell many books. Um, the websites are subscribed to because, because this looks to be successful. And so the assumption has become that size equals success. Right? I mean, if you're selling more widgets, you're a more successful business. If you have more people in the pews, then you must be successful as a church. Now, there's many different forms that this philosophy has taken. Uh, there's several different banners that this philosophy goes under. It's sometimes referred to as the church growth movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, uh, the purpose-driven church movement. Um, more lately, in recent decades, we hear uh, of the emerging or the emergent church. Now, keep in mind that not all of those movements are exactly synonymous. Those are not all synonymous terms. But, but at the root, they revolve around the idea that we need to better market the church or better market the gospel. And the, the, the failure of the gospel reaching people has to do with our failure to market it properly. Now, I will say this, not everything that those churches are doing is wrong. In fact, much of what they're saying is true, even if overly simplistic. But the stated goal of getting the most activity, the most people reached with the gospel is a fundamental assumption that we should examine more closely, especially when the means by which that is done is by relating to the surrounding culture. So, 
we are now in a passage of scripture here where Paul very clearly tailored his message to the culture in which he was preaching. Last week, we considered Paul's message to those that were there before him on Mars Hill. We made two points um, and just kind of introduced another one uh, last week. First of all, a wise witness capitalizes on every opportunity for evangelism. You remember that Paul took advantage of the opportunities that he had, and those gave him more opportunities for the gospel. We also gave considerable consideration to the fact that a wise witness is sensitive to his hearer. And so last week, we realized that Paul was, was winsome, that he even used illustrations that appealed to their own culture. He quoted from their philosophers and from their poets, and he appealed to that logic to, to make a, a case for the gospel. I mean, Paul understood very well the importance of relating his message to the hearers. So we might be left thinking that Paul did anything he could to relate the message. Is that what's happening in this text of Scripture? I mean, was Paul avoiding the sharp edges of the gospel in order to keep from offending? Well, it is clear that Paul, through a polite and winsome presentation of Jesus Christ, did what he could to build bridges to break down the barriers to the gospel. He was polite, but it should not be confused with a quote-unquote seeker-sensitive message. Many would use this passage as a justification for an anything-goes approach to evangelism as long as it, it gets the job done. But what we actually see in this passage is that Paul is kind, he's, he's careful, he's considerate, but he's also very firm. We see in this passage that a, a Christian witness understands the imperative of truth. Truth is indispensable. Jesus said it this way, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So as Paul preaches, what does he do? Well, he does a couple things. He, he actually directly, kindly of course, we, we mentioned that last week, but he actually directly confronts their wrong beliefs. He takes what he knows is true, that they believe, and then he builds a case on that to demonstrate for them why the other things that they believe that are wrong are in fact wrong. Notice with me verse 29, if you have your Bible open there to Acts 17. He says, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, think about it. He is standing in the midst of Mars Hill. He is surrounded by, by temples and altars and little places of worship, sh shrines, groves, all around him. I mean, it was a city that was full of idolatry. We saw that in the text last week. And think about what Paul is saying. That if you think this idol is a god, you're wrong. He's directly contradicting their idolatry. Now, he does note that they're religious. He does note that they have an impulse to seek after God. But he directly says, 
in verse 29 that their idolatry is wrong, he also notes that their polytheism is wrong. He says, you got this altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know. In fact, he is the, the ruler. He is the God and goes on to explain God to them. He actually goes on and calls for their repentance. In verse 30, he says, these times God overlooked. God tolerated. If you're using an old King James, uh, the word there is, is ignorance. Now, he doesn't mean that in an insulting sense. He's not, that's not a pejorative term. He, he, he's saying that, that, that there was, there's a time that God tolerates this, but there will come an end to that toleration. The, these times God, God winked at, he, he overlooked. But now, what? He calls men to repent. Furthermore, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Whoa, Paul brings up judgment? This doesn't sound like a very seeker-sensitive message to me. I mean, if, if you want to Paul, if, if you want to, you know, continue what you've, you've already established, if you want to, you're doing a good thing, you're relating to your audience, you've exegeted the culture really well, Paul, but, but, but don't bring up things like sin and judgment. I mean, that is, is not what we should be preaching, right? Well, Paul obviously didn't believe that. Clearly, we saw last week, he did believe in an appropriate way, which he related the message to his hearer understanding where they're coming from, being gracious, being kind, yet it did, he did not pull back on the judgment of God. In our culture, people love to talk about God in respect to His mercy and His grace and His love. Wow, we as believers should celebrate those things. We rejoice in God's grace. We rejoice in God's mercy. We rejoice that God is a loving God. Those are things that we ought to, to shout on the housetops, that we ought to sing. And in fact, we do. We sing about them. We celebrate them. We rejoice that God is merciful, that He's gracious, that He's loving. But do you recognize that all of those things are meaningless? In fact, they don't exist without the truths of God's justice, His judgment, His holiness. You say, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? Well, think about it this way. Mercy is God withholding from us the punishment that we deserve. Grace is God's bestowing on us favor that we do not deserve. If we are to say, well, we're just mildly misguided. We're really not that bad of people. We don't deserve judgment in the first place. There is no need for mercy. There is no context in which grace is important or significant or even exists. If we don't acknowledge the, the necessary judgment upon our sin, if we don't acknowledge that we are separated from God in our own right, then there is no such thing as mercy. There is no such thing as grace. And we don't understand the full breadth of God's love. And so our message of the gospel 
is that God is holy, He is just, and He is loving. Because of His Son, Jesus Christ, He has extended to us grace, undeserved favor. Perhaps you're listening this morning, and and you like to hear the, the kind of positive aspects of God's Word. Let's celebrate God's love and his, his mercy and His grace, and those things are, are wonderful, and we do celebrate those, but, but do you understand why they're weighty, why they're meaningful, why they're more than just flippant sentimentalism? It's because you and I deserve to be separated from God. You see, the Bible makes it clear that all have sinned. Romans 3 tells us we've all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. None of us, myself or anyone that's watching, meets up with God's righteous expectation. We all fall short. And because of that, we are separated from God, not just in this life, but forever, in the life to come in a terrible place called hell. But the good news is this, that God has provided a way in Jesus Christ that the punishment that you and I deserve can be poured out on Him. And it was poured out on him on the cross when he was crucified and died for your sins and for mine. Oh, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day. And when he rose, he indicated that he has the power to forgive the sins of all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith is that idea of of putting my dependence on him alone. Uh, repentance, as Paul talks about in this passage, is the, the turning from my wrong way. And so the question for you this morning is, has there ever been a time when you have abandoned your own way? You have repented. You have turned from yourself, from your self-dependence, from your own way of doing things, even from your goodness, from your religion, and depended completely on Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. Oh, my friend, if you've never done that this morning, today can be the day When you repent of your sin, you place your trust in Jesus Christ and you are made new, not because of what you have done, but because of Jesus Christ. You see, the message of the gospel is framed in a context. The light shines bright because the the darkness of sin is a reality. And so this is what Paul goes on to preach. He actually preaches in verse 31, the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Who is he talking about? We'll go on in the text. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Of course, he makes the resurrection of Christ, as we pointed out a few weeks ago on Easter, he makes that the hinge pin of the gospel. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no conquering of sin and death. Right, so so he Paul presents here Jesus Christ, all of the gospel, all of the good news is it comes to fruition because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is not some generic deity. This is not you know merely appeal to the God that seems right to you. It is very specific that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. These are the essential elements of the good news, of the gospel. Of course, the New Testament here records for us a summary of Paul's sermon. That's generally the way sermons are recorded in the New Testament. There's probably much more 
that took place in Paul's sermon, but these are the, the core elements of what he is saying. Even in this short summary, we see very clearly that Paul presents forgiveness, he presents sin, he, uh, he, he talks about eternal life, um, and the reality is that we have the same problem that those to whom he is preaching had. We're all idolaters. We all are guilty before God of putting another deity, another God before Him. And because of our sin, we deserve judgment. But our hope is to, to as Paul calls upon these people, to forsake our idols and turn to the one true God who is Jesus Christ. So he preaches about Christ, and I would simply say this morning, if you've never believed, today is the day to believe. Embrace these truths and be saved. Now let's apply this for a moment. Of course, the application that we've already made, if you're not a believer this morning, turn from your way to depend on Jesus Christ. What about those who are believers that are called, that are tasked with pre uh, preaching the message, declaring the message of the, the gospel. A lot of times we'll hear in our popular culture things like relevance, contextualization, exegeting the culture. These are, these are buzzwords kind of evangel in evangelicalism right now. Sure, we would, should be relevant. I mean, who wants to be irrelevant? In fact, I would even say that there is a way to appropriately, quote-unquote, contextualize, if by that you mean that you're sensitive to, the, to those around you. But we have to balance our thinking by remembering that no amount of relevance, no amount of, of contextualization is going to make the gospel friendly to a person who is, is rejecting the gospel, who is at enmity with God. I simply do not buy the argument that the church needs to be more like the surrounding culture. In fact, I see the New Testament chock full of admonitions to not be like the surrounding world. I actually see very little scripture encouraging us to emulate the world in giving the message of the gospel. And beyond that, may I remind us that, that God's word brings salvation. The truth of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is what brings about regeneration. It is not simply being a good testimony or acting a certain way, or certainly not being thought of as relevant by the culture. Let me give you some scripture. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul is speaking to his protege and he says, And that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, watch this now, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing. And as one hears the word of God, the truth of God, given in scripture, they are saved. Another passage, Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Our witness is not just about being a good testimony. Certainly that is important. It is about giving the truths of Scripture to those who need to hear the gospel. Even, even bringing people to church is not 
really evangelism until they are confronted with their sins. I used to be, uh, some years ago, was a youth pastor uh, in the state of Florida. And uh, as a youth pastor, you get some interesting people getting in touch with you. And, and there was this fad for a while where companies were developing, I don't know, maybe it's still a thing, but I, I, I think it's kind of passed off the scene, but there's, there was this fad for a while where companies were making Sunday school curriculums that were based on TV shows. And you would show this little TV show in your youth group, and then, you know, you'd talk about some lessons from it. And I would get these phone calls from these salesmen who want to kind of rejuvenate our, um, our curriculum, our program that we're doing with our teens and uh, sell me these, you know, Sunday school programs that were based on TV sitcoms. And I would kindly explain to them that we're very happy with the approach that we're using, of course, which then prompted the question, well, well what are you doing? And I would usually explain to them that we were attempting to teach our teens the Bible, which was met with various levels of shock on the part of some. What? You're teenagers? You're teaching teenagers the Bible? Well, we can do all kinds of things to make make the study of the Word relevant and fun and all those kind of things. But, But the reality is, at the end of the day, what we need is God's Word. Because it is God's Word that is quick and powerful. It is life-giving. What we need is not a TV show to entertain us with a little Bible tacked on the end. What we need is God's Word. Paul didn't pull any punches on the truth. As we think about our church, it is important that we understand a sound philosophy. Pastor Dan read for us in our call to worship from 1 Corinthians 1. In that passage, we saw that Paul, under inspiration, says, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. Literally, the text says, through the folly of preaching, it pleased God to save those who believe. From the truth being proclaimed, people come to saving faith. The proclamation of the truth is indispensable to gospel work. Now, you know, if you are associated with North Hills Baptist, that for us, the centerpiece of our worship is the preaching of God's Word. We absolutely think that music is important, especially congregational singing. I look forward to being with you again next week when we're able to actually sing together and encourage one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But frankly, um, what we do from the pulpit is becoming less and less um, culturally appropriate. And so we're informed not by culture, but guided by Scripture. We talked earlier about the marketing of the church. Sometimes my my friends in the business community will say something like, well, the church is a business too. Maybe, Maybe you're thinking that. I'm never quite sure how to answer that because the fact is there are some similarities, right? A church must observe sound financial practices, good organizational practices, some of the leadership principles carry over. So I guess there's a sense in what, uh, you know, what we're to do. I mean, even on a legal sense, the standing is a non-profit corporation. 
Churches sometimes advertise even to get the word out about how they can serve others. So just like a business, a church does need to plan. It needs to be strategic to accomplish the mission. If we aren't planning, if we aren't strategizing, um, we're, you know, as the old adage goes, failing to plan is planning to fail. So there's some overlapping points, and I think a lot of times I understand what people mean by that. But here's the thing. The ultimate goal, the, the mission of the church and the mission of a business are, are rather different. The, the ultimate mission for a, a business is to please the customer in order to procure their continued business and to make a profit. So the focus appropriately becomes, what does that customer need? What does that customer want? What can we provide for that customer? But, but for the church, the end goal for the church is not pleasing the target audience, but actually changing those to whom it ministers. And that's me, that's you, that's every person who comes in contact with the church. We are to be changing. And the church is to be God's change agent. And so the change comes how? Well, it comes through the power of the gospel. The gospel is not a commodity to be peddled. It is not a product to be marketed. It is the message to be proclaimed. And in the face of that proclamation, there will be different responses. And this is what we see here in this passage of Scripture as well. We see in this passage, lastly, that a wise witness persists amidst, amidst a variety of responses. We observed a few weeks ago um, the various, um, or I referred to a few weeks ago, various responses to the gospel in the parable of the soils. In this particular text, we see actually uh, three responses here. What are those? Well, first of all, in verse 32, the first response that we receive, that, that we see Paul uh, encountering is uh, that some mocked. And that's the case. Some will ridicule the gospel. So it says in verse 32, some mocked. Notice in particularly, in particular, they mocked the miraculous component of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, there is no gospel. Um, some who so eagerly pursue, perceive relevance as their great goal act as if, you know, if we got our presentation just right, then everyone, everyone would come to repentance. Notice Paul's very skillful presentation of the gospel resulted in what? Some mocking. I mean, he's a shining example of how to understand your audience, yet some mocked. May I just remind us here? I mean, if we're going to use this passage of Scripture as, as kind of a proof text for a, a philosophy of preaching, a philosophy of ministry, to those who are hostile to the gospel. May I just remind us here that, that Paul was beaten, he was stoned, he was run out of town, he was arrested, eventually he was executed for preaching the gospel. If Paul was the first marketer of the gospel, he was a colossal failure. I would just submit to you that that was not Paul's goal. It, it, what are some other reactions we see? Well, we see a second reaction in this text. Notice it says, and some said, we will hear you again on this matter. There are those that will hear the gospel. They will not receive it, but they will contemplate it. They will, they will be open to 
continued work in their hearts. If you know the story of missions, you are familiar with the name Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma in 1812. Burma has since been renamed Myanmar. It was six long, crushing, difficult years before Adoniram Judson encountered his first convert. Reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. May I just encourage us this morning to not become discouraged in the face of rejection. Because there are some who will hear us again on this matter. They will will contemplate what we've said. They will give it thought. They will come back with additional questions. And who knows but that God might send circumstances into their lives that will give them an openness that they did not have before. I've made a lot of comments about the contemporary church in this message, and I just want to make make clear that many of our brothers and sisters who are participating in many of these church movements um, that I've mentioned, many of them are good people, they're sincere, they love God, and they are, are striving to give the gospel. Many, many of these ministries are well-intentioned. I'm just simply pointing out the fact that perhaps some of our underlying understanding is misguided in these efforts. What I actually see happening amongst many millennials is that there's kind of a shift back to a more historic, biblically rooted faith. I think think American Christians have kind of been gorging themselves on spiritual candy for a couple of decades, and there's starting to be this turn back to demonstrate the simplicity of a focus of the faith once delivered. So... It's interesting that we as a church here at North Hills, I would say that perhaps one of the most innovative things about us is that we're not altogether that innovative. Now, we certainly feel there are ways that we can appropriately engage. I mean, look at the fact that we are right now engaged online with no one in the auditorium, yet we're engaged through a technological medium. Well, there are are ways that we can appropriately adapt to our culture. But what we need to understand is that God is doing the work of drawing people to himself. It is not our cleverness. It is not our winsomeness. It is not how well we relate to the culture around us. We need to be willing to do the difficult task of telling people the truth of the gospel Certainly, we need to be kind as we do it. We need to understand where they're coming from. We need to ask deeper penetrating questions so that we can better relate the message to to people. But at the end of the day, it is the preaching of the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit's taking of that message and penetrating the hearts of our hearers that converts people. Perhaps I'm talking to someone this morning whom God is drawing. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us this morning for this Bible study. Perhaps you've even seen God working in your life in in unusual and unexpected ways. Perhaps there is a time right now, because of all that is going on in our world, 
because of this, this quarantine situation, because of, of your job instability, because of whatever circumstance that you are, you are now awakened into the reality that perhaps you need to consider God once again. What a wonderful thing to be happening in your heart. We would consider it a privilege, as we said before, to be with you on that journey. Any member of North Hills would be happy to take a Bible and to, to answer your questions, to, to study God's Word with you and to help you draw closer to God. And as I think about our church, I think about some who have come to faith in recent years, even since the church started. Well, we can't take any credit for that. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that the, the reason that we have to acknowledge that this is God's work? Because we can't take credit for it. I mean, if we're really good at manipulating, at, at, at uh, navigating the culture, then perhaps we can take a little credit for it, but we can't do that. God is the one that is doing the work. God is the one that draws people to himself and, and inst- instigates new life within them. He's at work in hearts, in the lives of people. And we are privileged to participate. What a joy it is. You and I should give the gospel wisely and let God do his work.